Welcome to Dig Beneath Design, a podcast where design professionals share how they communicate their work. I'm Sanaya Norton, landscape architect, and after 20 years of practice, I've seen how communication can make or break a project, no matter how great the idea. So I'm going out into the industry to uncover the best design communication strategies and tips to help us be more effective, more articulate designers and get more great ideas off the ground. When I think of Helen Lockhead, I picture constant motion, a jolt of energy through the architecture profession. Her career spans worlds, architecture, landscape and urban design, private practice, public sector and academia. She's currently the first female dean of the Faculty of the Built Environment at UNSW Sydney. She's national president of the Australian Institute of Architects and one of the Australian Financial Review's top 100 women of influence. Helen is whip-smart and fast-paced. I've seen her cut through bureaucratic guff and meeting rooms full of posturing egos. She's inspiring, resilient and ambitious, and everyone wants her for their mentor. Find out how to impress a design review panel, how to beat imposter syndrome and embrace your own leadership style, plus essential tips for student presentations. It's a grey day on UNSW Kensington campus and we're squirrelled away in the Dean's Conference Room at the top of the Red Centre building, listening to the rain pattering on the roof. Helen's running late and her day is mapped out to the minute, but she manages to sweet-talk her Deputy Dean into filling in on a Mardi Gras photo shoot and suddenly a magical window of 90 minutes opens up. Let's get down to the good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. Um, my name is Helen Lockhead and I'm the Dean of the Faculty of the Built Environment at UNSW in Sydney. And if you don't know what a Dean does, it pretty much is the person responsible for everything that happens in the programs across the faculty, architecture, landscape, industrial design, urban design, planning, construction management and development, as well as the organisation and the running of the place. And your career up till now has been fairly varied because you've run your own business, worked in private practice, worked in the public sector for a long time and now into academia. One of my kind of larger questions to you is if you see major differences in how people communicate, how designers communicate across those three spheres. Mm. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think um, the way, I, I think from coming from a private practice background, you're very much serving a client and meeting their needs in a very, very specific way. So you're trying to gauge what they want personally or from a commercial point of view and responding in a direct way. I think for public clients it's completely different. They are a third party client and they're engaging you to provide a project for somebody else that may be unknown to any of us. Um, the end user isn't always someone you have direct engagement with. So it's a very different briefing process and how you actually convince them that something is the right approach is, is very different because they're not really interested in you per se, they're just interested in the outcome. Whereas I think in the private sector, someone engages you for yourself and your skill set as well as the outcome. It's a much more integrated engagement. And I think in terms of um, academia, academics 
communicate in a completely different way altogether because they're, they're more cerebral in their form of communication and often they have great ideas which they do not communicate as lucidly as we would like, hence students' frustration. I mean, sometimes when I have meetings with, you know, not only a few of our academics and they talk to me, I, I have been known to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you just put that in plain English? And then can they? Yes, yes. They generally yes, can. Yes. Okay, so it's just more that they don't think to... Yes, it's like a shorthand. So they're assuming a level of knowledge or a level of understanding and they just start at that point and you haven't read chapters one to five beforehand. So it's not that it's inaccessible, it's just that you haven't got the assumed background. What do you hope to get from students when they present to you? Well, for me, I think the first thing I want to know is the overarching narrative. What is your big idea? What are you trying to achieve here? Why are you doing what you're doing? And why not something else? What is your proposition? So that at least if I don't necessarily agree with the direction, I can understand the underlying rationale and logic for where you're coming from and then critique you in the terms which are relevant to you. So often students describe a project rather than explain a project. And I think in any situation like that, to be a good juror, you have to have a clear explanation to provide appropriate response and critique. I remember the first time in design when I was in year one in architecture at the University of Sydney. and. So we had to design our own house. If we were designing your own house and there was no brief and it was just for you, what would it be like? I ended up looking at the idea of the inside and the outside working together. And that connection between shelter and nature was fundamentally what I was very interested in, that kind of seamless transition between the two. And therefore, you know, when I started exploring that idea, it generated a certain form, which you know started looking like a yin and yang symbol, coincidentally. But that was the explanation for what I was thinking. I could have achieved it in many ways, you know, a courtyard building, for example, or a U-shaped building, or there's no one right way. But at least if I was critiquing that scheme now, being on the other side of the table, I would have been able to say, well, yes, you did achieve that. Um, I'm not sure about the form that you chose, but and you could have achieved that in a number of ways, but I, I, I can see what you were trying to achieve and maybe you could think about this and that and that, as opposed to this building is made out of um, masonry, it has a curtain wall on this side and you know big opening windows and a courtyard outside with pavers or, you know, or greenery. And you go, I can see that, the drawing shows me that. Tell me about the, the proposal explain to me why this proposal looks like this. So how well do you think that design review process prepares students for practice? I, look, I think it's absolutely fundamental. I know that it's an, a daunting experience, but I think there's two imperatives about design review. One, it's about self-analysis and self-critique and taking on critique to improve, to incrementally improve what you're doing so you get 
to the most robust and rigorous proposition. Because, you know, it's a, often design is a very complex process. You start at a very furry conceptual frame and as you, you hone it and you start looking at the development controls or construction imperatives or logistics of where the materials are going to come from or budget, all these things come into play and more and more information starts hemming in what's possible and what's not possible. So you have to keep on iterating. I always describe design as like a daisy wheel where you just keep on, you loop out and then you come back in and you loop out and come back in until that daisy is complete. Sometimes you come back to exactly the same point where you started, but you could only arrive at that daisy by going through the whole process and coming back to the beginning because you had to go through all those iterations to to sort of come back to that kernel of the idea which at the beginning you didn't have all the information to be able to resolve. It was just still the germ of an idea. And the real great work is when that idea is able to be executed in a technical way, meeting all those constraints and the stakeholder needs and all the rest of it, and still that idea is intact. And I think that's why design critique and re peer review is very important right through the whole process. It's not just at the end, but incrementally to get you where you need to arrive at. What about yourself presenting work? What's the best experience you've had when you've been presenting an idea or a project? The ones where I've actually got the most out of it in terms of really positive feedback is where you haven't answered the question, but you've given the client a way into a different solution. And then you can see they have this aha moment and they go, you, you know, the, the, there's two ways it can go. They can either go, that wasn't what we asked you to do. Or like, I hadn't even thought about that. That's fantastic. And that's the beauty of public clients, I think, because often they're not wedded to the, the project. They've got a deliverable. And if they can deliver something which is more than the sum of the parts or more than they bargained for, that's a good reflection on them. And so that's why I've always liked working in the public sector because there's a bigger remit that you can you know, tap into. And you sit on a bunch of design review panels and I'm sure you've seen many, many presentations when you're sitting on that side of the table. Have you got any memories of the best ones you've seen? Great presenters are completely different in the way they present. They can present in very, very different ways and be equally compelling. And often, not only compelling, but charismatic. You're totally seduced. And that's an art. I, I, you know, not everyone who walks into a room when you see them looks like they're going to be charismatic. But the way they then unfold their story can be so different from the previous person. And you walk away going, who would have thought that? I mean, who would have thunk that? There was one I went to not so long ago where there was, a, you know, he was an international architect and he came in and he said, well, this was my first impression of Sydney. He described that experience of the harbour and that connection to the harbour and the, the, the sea air. And so he completely took you there. If you closed your eyes, you were on Sydney Harbour or close to Sydney Harbour. And then he actually got out a, a pen and started drawing and he actually took you through his design process and his journey directly right then and there in real time and then drew the conceptual design and then moved it into a, an electronic communication where some of those drawings that he was doing in front of you 
magically translated to the screen and then took you into the next dimension, which was a very refined architectural proposal. But he got you in like, this is what, how I feel about it, this is how you'll feel about it, and this is the process I got to get there. I mean, extremely compelling. And I also saw him then present in an international conference overseas, a completely different building, completely different concept. And, and in a, an audience, it must have been, you know, 500 plus people. But he had that same level of connectedness by drawing. I think in that particular situation, he drew on, on a, a tablet. So it came up on the screen. But it was a very direct and visceral type of communication. On the flip side, you can have people who are so polished, and you know, I think Richard Francis Jones is an absolute master at this, and I've seen him present in juries many, many, many times, and I have never seen him stumble or hiccup. His timing with the slides and what he's going to talk about never misses a beat and never fails to take you from the beginning to the end, from the overall arching idea, the context right through to the detailed execution, include other people who have been contributors, bring them in to speak to parts of the scheme, pull away, come back in, in this seamless way, as if that's how he talks in his normal everyday life, which of course is, he doesn't. It's totally for the presentation. It's extraordinary to see. I've never, I've never seen him do a poor presentation. And um, yeah, again, it's not just an art, it's a skill that's been developed over, perfected you know, and perfected honed. and honed. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. it pays off. Mesmerising. Yeah. Both of those presentations yeah. you described. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what I'm kind of really interested in with working with our industry is how every individual can find that personal charisma or find that connection with their audience or find their own style. Is it like, you know, that personal story or is it this polished and calm and authoritative delivery? Well, um, I think that's a really good point. I, I do think that the essence is to be authentic, to be your authentic self. If you are a showman or a show person, you can be showy because that comes across as being who you are. If I did it, I would look like a complete fraud because I'm fairly quiet and introverted. And so I have to speak in a completely different way. But I do think when I present, it is very much from an authentic place and it's more organic. And this is what I really think is the right thing. And this is why, and I want you to understand the process that we've gone through is quite robust and rigorous. And I hope you can understand and appreciate the values behind that and the motivations for that and, and will buy into that. So it's, a, it's about a, a developing a trust with the person or the, the people that you're communicating with so they want to come on the journey with you. But it's horses for courses. I've, e I've equally seen very professionally polished international architects who are quite abrupt and very authoritative. I mean, this is the way it is. If you analyse the site, this is what you need to do. This is the response, and that's the solution. And, you know, it's a bit like eat your porridge. But on the other hand, it, you know, I can see other people on a jury responding to that very confidently because they know this person knows they've done their homework, they know what they're talking about, they're, they're very experienced and they'll deliver what they promise. So there's no doubt about it. There's no questions. There's no loose ends. There's no room for discussion because they've, they've worked it out and 
here it is. And, and that gives some clients a great deal of confidence and assurance that there's a low risk involved in this. And because they're, they're internationally renowned, they've got the runs on the board, you know, it's a, a winner. So there's no right way. The person has to have the right way for themselves. I liked hearing you talk a bit about your own experience presenting because I know you do a lot of that. You do, you know, you're always called on to present something or uh, speak on behalf of the university at Government Architects. You also had to do a lot of that. Tell me a bit about your preparation process for that. Do you get nervous? Yeah, what's it? Uh, what's the expression? Fake it till you make it. Do you feel like you have to do that? Uh, look, when I came to the university, and I really, you know, suddenly I had that title of professor. In a university environment, you realise that a professorial title has a lot of prestige associated with it because you've you've risen to those ranks through, you know, quite an onerous process. And here I came in as an outsider, without that sort of academic ladder. And I felt perhaps I was a, you know, you know, you suffer from imposter syndrome. And so how do you actually carry that cloak and wear it with a degree of decorum and authenticity? And, you know, I talked to one of the professors here and I shared that. And, you know, he, he pretty much convinced me that the reason I was here was not because I had come through those ranks. It was because of all the other things I had done. And I needed to have, you know, confidence that that was what I brought and that that gave me my own agency to be who I am and to be authentic in that and I suppose that was probably very early on and gave me confidence to just be myself and sometimes I do it better than others and I do think the more you do it you you get more confident at doing that so I mean I was in a, a, a conference in Dubai last year where I was one of the keynotes doing a very short thing on um, I can't remember actually what the topic was but it was very short and sharp and I used, you know, a f I don't know, maybe 10 slides or five slides. And then was, with all these other international speakers, everyone presented very short shops. And then we had a panel discussion and then people came up to me afterwards and said that that was fantastic. Now, I don't even know what I did. Oh, like, you know, I couldn't even recreate what I did probably. But I think it was only because I was passionate about what I was saying and I, I could talk about it without notes or I could just walk without a lectern or just stand in front of people and talk to the images in a way which was very second nature and, and confidently. And so you, you come across with authority even though, you know, you're not a show person. And so, I, you know, that's the key, talking, talking to your area of expertise and that way you can be authentic. But sometimes you do have to fake it. What kind of communication skills are important as a leader, as a manager, as a director? Uh, look, I, I, I think they're not that different. I, I do think everyone has a different leadership style. There's many ways people come into those leadership roles and have to negotiate it. But again, I do think you have to be authentic. So if you're a quiet leader, it often is about engaging with people on a one-on-one -on -one level and having um, meaningful relationships as opposed to having a big forum kind of talking to the masses mm. sort of relationship which works for other people. I think it's about being able to communicate two ways, about listening to people, being available to hear people, responding on, a, on an individual level when you need to, 
whether it's a student or whether it's a peer or whether it's a direct report. And it's also about sometimes being a leader who has principles and that these principles need to be adhered to. These behaviours are what are expected and sometimes having those difficult conversations and doing it with the same level of authenticity as you would a positive affirming conversation. It's not always rosy, but I do think you have to show transparency and fairness. So when we're having this conversation, I'm saying it because I think everyone deserves to be treated fairly and I think your behaviour was out of line and you demonstrated disrespect. Or, you know, I understand you feel like you've, your marks are not what you should have had. So we went through a process. We got an independent assessor who's not involved in the course and they came up with a, the same mark and, and that has been you know, ratified at a university level. So it's been t dealt with outside the faculty and you may not like that outcome, but I think that it's a fair and transparent process. So mm. sometimes you have to be firm, but it's, it's about having the same approach. One of the things I remember from having you as one of my bosses at Government Architects was how direct you were. So the people who worked for you were never unclear about where they stood on a project or, or, or with your direction. I, I am direct. And I, I think it's because, you know, I can analyse situations. I can come to the conclusion quite quickly. Yes. So, OK, got, got it. OK, let's move on. Or, or this is the answer. Or maybe, no, that's not right. Or, you know, um, I think you should think about this. So it is more I've, I've kind of jumped ahead, you know, rather than cogitating over it. And sometimes it comes across as being too direct and I often go oh, what was I thinking in saying that but it, it is yes it it does come out without necessarily um, a lot of preamble and it's really about cutting to the chase and that's why I think you know having a culture of critique where you're used to that sort of backwards and forwards and to and fro that it's just meant to get to where we need to get to and we're doing this together and maybe this and maybe that. I think that might be working. What do you think? And, you know, I may not be right when I'm saying this, but I'll just put it out there anyway. It's meant to be a, a sort of a dialogue as opposed to a directive. Yeah. yeah. Helen's forged a path to the upper echelons of architectural leadership, which remains largely male-dominated. I asked her what she's learned from the experience. Yes, well, look, I, I must say that age actually is really on your side as a woman because the older you get you, you do get some respect because you're not just a girl you're not treated as a girl I mean you still hear that the girls did a great job on that and you just go really I mean I'm sure they're all over 21 you know I mean or 18 mm, or they're not children or 35 I mean so the older you get people wouldn't ever even presume that you were less than a woman and you weren't nothing short of experienced in what you're doing. So that actually helps. I, I mean, it's unfortunate to say that, but I also realise that you, you do have to sometimes speak up and speak out when you don't want to. But I, I know that because I've been put in these positions long enough, I do have confidence to actually speak up. But you, you, I mean, I even, you know, even now, men will talk across you at a meeting as if you, have, you haven't said anything. Even now. And, and yes, and the other one is mansplaining, which I think is still alive and well, when a woman in a meeting will say something and then a man will ex say the same thing and you, you just sort of say, actually, that's pretty much exactly what Senea said. And they'll look at you in 
disbelief as if to go, oh, really? And I think that still happens, which is really unfortunate. But there are so many more women around the table now and compared to when I was younger. And women are very verbal and articulate. So I don't see it as a, as a major issue. And I, but I do think women have to you know, hold their position and, and be sure of their, their ground and they have the experience and they have the runs on the board and they have the credentials to have authority in a positive way. And they should take that. Have you ever had a presentation or a communication experience where it's gone completely wrong, where it's just gone pear-shaped or a disaster that you've learned from? Oh, look, I have been in community consultations which have been horrible. I mean, there was one, I, I won't even name the local government area, where I was working with a colleague of mine who was from non-English speaking background and someone thought, well, they couldn't attack me, so they would attack them. And it was just the most hideous, racist, sexist behavior that I just, you know, went into that complete, what's, what's it, what is it, you know, the adrenaline fight or flight? Which way did you go? Um, I got fight and I just stood between this man and this young colleague and said in no uncertain terms that he needed to, um, cease and desist but I felt like this you know I felt like every bit of adrenaline in my body was charged to communicate that in a, a powerful way without replicating the behavior that was being aimed towards my colleague but it was it was you know it it was a very um charged public meeting people didn't want change in the neighborhood and so it wasn't a very comfortable experience but then when it ended in this sort of very directed way. I just thought, oh, this is enough is enough. Okay, last question is, if you could look back and see yourself starting out in the profession, what would you say to yourself? You know, I suppose that you have to find your, your value proposition. Well, you know, what you, what's your true north? You, again, you know, it gets down to being authentic. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What makes you, you tick? What drives you to do what you do? To work long hours, to seek perfection, to, be, to do what you do, do well. And if it's money, well, that's fine because you need to know that so you put yourself in a place where you are rewarded for your efforts. If it's public purpose or working in the public interest, which was for me something that really was a driver for me, then you need to work in a public forum. And for me, that's why moving into education or university was not that different because it's, it's really about the greater good and making a difference on a larger scale. Um, so I think you have to find what your true north is and then be true to yourself in whatever you do. And then you'll find the way, your your right path. I know, for example, in our programs in architecture, in the Masters of Architecture, we have you know, these streams you can do from social agency through to high performance architecture. You know, they're very different directions that people can pursue. And, and you know, our, our disciplines take very different paths. You can work at a small scale or a large scale. You can work in small practice or you can work in multinational practices. You can work globally or locally. So there is no right path. It's just what's the right path for you. And so I suppose that would probably be tapping into what feeds you from as early on as possible. On the flip side, I'd also say be open. 
be open to the opportunity, to be open to the unknown, because you may not know what your true north is until you stumble across it. And I know for myself, you know, I studied architecture and I loved architecture, but then I always was interested in the bigger picture and I always kept on, well, even see from that very first project I talked to you about, it was connecting to the outdoors about the landscape and the relationship to the landscape. So then I went and studied landscape and then I thought, well, actually I'm interested in landscape, but I'm more interested in, I'm still interested in the urban environment. So urban design, you know, became something which engaged me. So. You, you have to be open to taking a path which may not be where you think you're going and letting it lead you as much as you directing the, the journey. And I think that's also a tip that I would say is worth following. Thank you. Thanks so much, Helen, for being on Dig Beneath Design. It's been such a pleasure catching up and, and hearing some of your great stories. I know they're going to help a lot of people. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to a podcast of Dig Beneath Design, here to help you in your daily design communication challenges. So I'd love to hear from you, what you think of the show, what you want to know. Tell me the design communicators that inspire you, or maybe there's a great story from your own experience that can help your fellow designers. Find more interviews at sndc.com.au forward slash dig beneath design. Dig Beneath Design is brought to you by SNDC. Original music by Adam Jones. Sound and photography by James Norton. Engineered and mastered at Sound Kitchen Sydney. I'm Sunaya Norton. Join me next time for more good dirt on Dig Beneath Design.